Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And uh, I know that you fall into one of three categories. Either you're a happy warrior, or you are a happy warrior in training, or you've never heard of the term happy warrior, because to know what a happy warrior is, is only one short step away from wanting to be one. As I often tell you, uh, the phrase happy warrior, I learnt from the English poet William Wordsworth, and some of the lines of his poem about the happy warrior uh, sound like this. Who is the happy warrior? Who is he that every man in arms should wish to be? It is the generous spirit who finds comfort in himself and in his cause, and while the mortal mist is gathering, draws his breath in confidence of heaven's applause. This is the happy warrior. This is he that every man in arms should wish to be. And uh, there's another poem by a poet called William Ernest Henley, and his poem is called Invictus. And the last lines of Invictus read, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And I love that line because we happy warriors are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. And so it is my honor to be your rabbi. We're all happy warriors, whether man or woman, because to live productively, you have to fight every day against the force of entropy, if nothing else. That is the aspect of reality which means that things deteriorate. If nothing else, you fight to maintain your possessions. You fight to build and maintain your family and your money, your body and your business, profession or career. God created a world in which chaos and disorder rules That, by the way, is the meaning of the second verse of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 teaches that God created a world of chaos, a world that generates resistance to every effort you make to improve yourself and your five F's. Tell folks that you want to improve the world and they'll idolize you. Tell them you want to save the world, and they'll prostrate themselves before you in admiration. But improving the world and saving the world are really just excuses to do whatever it was you wanted to do all along. But this way, you invest your actions with a veneer of piety, devotion, and sacrifice. The best description of Karl Marx's ideas would be the word failure. Marx claimed that the point of his philosophy was not just to understand the world, but to improve the world. Yet his philosophy changed the world for the worse. During the 20th century, most of the 20th century, about 40% of humanity lived under Marxist regimes, and they endured famines and gulags and massacres and party dictatorships 
and genocides. Marx was profoundly troubled trying to understand why communism would not take root in the most advanced economies. It was in the early 20th century, in the aftermath of World War I and all its horrors, that uh, Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, gave socialism new life. In Russia, he pioneered modern communism, which was then imposed on 18 countries around the world and one-third of all of mankind. Repression was justified by socialism's purported economic benefits, but the actual results were economic misery and the snuffing out of perhaps 100 million lives. So much for socialism. Today, communist parties rule six countries around the world, but most of them follow the lead of China, where the party includes entrepreneurs. It's interesting that um, the socialists, particularly young socialists around the world, uh, love quoting the beauties of Scandinavia. They don't point to the likes of Castro's Cuba or Daniel Ortega or Hugo Chavez or Maduro They don't point to Venezuela, but they like pointing to Scandinavia for the success of socialism. But it isn't true. Scandinavia did create dense social safety nets, but they were underwritten by remarkably free capitalistic economies. As a matter of fact, you know, the the World Bank does an annual listing of which countries is it easy to start businesses in and which countries are very hard. You'll be shocked to hear how far down the list America ranks these days. It is extremely difficult to start and run a business in the United States. Denmark and Norway rank up in the top top five or six, uh, say the top 10 out of 190 countries. Norway was number seven. Um, Sweden was, okay, Sweden is number 12. But uh, this is the failure of socialism. Funnily enough, if, if, if one can find anything at all funny about socialism and the misery it has imposed on the lives of so many that it didn't actually kill, um, it's that Marx was really bothered by why his dream of communism refused to take root in the most advanced economies. Um, he, he couldn't get the workers of the United States to unite and embrace socialism, and it was very bothersome to him. However, the sad thing is that today, Marx's philosophical heirs, young people in America, England, France, Sweden, and many other Western countries, Flirting with socialism are busy granting Karl Marx a post-mortem victory. Today's only successful self-styled Marxist regime is China, and it is largely an enthusiastic practitioner of capitalism. The self-important clowns strutting recently in Glasgow and pretending to be statesmen We're all trying to save the world. 
This cranky conceit allowed them to work towards hobbling civilization with their climate restraints while sounding noble and self-sacrificing. No, please forget about improving the world or saving the world. You're only going to do harm and damage. The very best way to help others, and yes, even the world, is by growing your own five Fs and giving 10% of your achievements to others with less. It's paradoxical, isn't it? That if you really want to help other people, set about trying to improve your five Fs. What an extraordinarily interwoven matrix of intercommunication that God created for humanity. Just try and improve your own life, and that's actually the best thing you can do for everybody else. When you actually set out to save others and improve the world, invariably mischief results. Don't try and help other countries. Don't try and help other groups or nations. No, just try and help other individuals. Yeah, really, if you've, you know, you've got 10% of your achievements to donate to people who have less, find people who have less rather than to nations. You know, you just have to ask yourself whether you would be happier living in a society of people practicing and promoting their own five Fs, or would you rather live in a society of people trying to improve the world? Remember, the only way that the creeps, crooks, clowns, and cranks can improve the world is by forcing you to conform to their twisted vision of what an improved world would look like. A minor detail they never share until it's far too late and your freedom has died on the altar of their quest for power. You're a happy warrior. Don't buy it. If each week your own five Fs are better than they were a week earlier, you are a blessing not only to yourself and to your family and your friends and your neighbors, but you're an asset to your community and your town and a treasure of your country. None of this is easy. It's so much easier to get involved with fixing the world and improving the world. It's much harder to develop your own five Fs. It's not easy. And that's why it takes warriors to prevail. Life is a fight, and that's a good thing, because to stop fighting and seeking and striving just means that you're dead. And I call you not just warriors, but as you know, I think of us all as happy warriors, because to throw yourself into the fight for eight or ten hours a day, six days a week, well, that's one thing. But to do all that with a debonair smile on your face, a jaunty pace to your stride, and optimism springing spontaneously in your soul, to do all that while generating an irrepressible surge of happiness welling up in your heart, well, that means you are spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming. 
devoted to your faith, your family, your finances, your fitness, and your friends, knowing that you can triumph over all those scheming savages, some in Armani suits and others with masked faces wielding crowbars and hammers. All of these who both intentionally and unknowingly promote a dark abyss of satanic secular socialism and all of the many destructive and evil social pathologies that it generates. Why is it that I regularly refer to the destructive pathologies that are racking Western civilization, chiefly in the United States, but in many other places as well, why do I speak of a secular fundamentalism or secular socialism or social secularism? But why is it that the abolition of Bible-based Judeo-Christian tradition seems to lie at the heart of this? Well, it actually does if you only look at what is really going on. But um, let me also, let me just remind you that uh, those of you who celebrate Passover might be interested to know that um, I will be hosting the teaching and the Bible study at a Passover eight-day retreat in for Passover 2022 in Mexico. And so for those of you who may want to participate in that, all you need to do is uh, contact me through my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, and I will be able to further you uh, the information. It is an eight-day program at uh, a beautiful hotel in Mexico, Uh, Obviously, Passover will be observed according to Jewish custom. Uh, Needless to say, everything will be kosher. And uh, and I will have the pleasure of teaching the implications of the story of the Exodus. Why the book of Exodus spends so many chapters recording every detail of what actually took place when Moses and the children of Israel left Egypt over 3,300 years ago. What does that mean for us today? And I will be teaching that in Mexico this April 2022, because the Bible does lie at the root of it. Just think about this from, from a logical point of view. In the United States, we recently saw parents in various towns across the United States begin to rebel against the educational establishment that has been imposing tenets of secular fundamentalism upon their children. Up until now, parents have had a placid complacency about the education their children are receiving in GICs. Are there still any of you who do not yet know what a GIC is, a G-I-C? Well, it's, it's the correct term for what used to be known as public schools. It stands for Government Indoctrination Camp. 
and the official government religion of the United States of America is secular fundamentalism, and that is exactly what is being taught to children. And one of the things that drove parents into a frenzy of rebellion was the fact that the schools were defending the practice of allowing high school boys who self-identified as girls to enter the girls' locker rooms and bathrooms with impunity. And not surprisingly, some very nasty things have taken place. And finally, uh, the parents had had enough. Do you think that the educational establishment in the United States is backing down? Do you think they're saying, you know what, we pushed a little too hard? Don't you think somebody might have said, uh, you know, guys, I mean, we, we all know we've got this leftist agenda. We're trying to uh, turn these children into socioeconomic cogs for the governmental complex. And, uh, and now we're asking them to accept that their daughters have to be frightened by guys in the uh, girls' bathroom. We've got to back off this. No, they're not backing off. They're doubling down. Why is that? And the answer is because the guiding underlying principle of secular fundamentalism is you have to undo two millennia of Judeo-Christian tradition that has fueled the formation of Western civilization. And so regardless, this is a religious duty on their part, and they will go down in flames rather than surrender their principles. And the principles are, if the Bible says black, we say white. If the Bible says yes, we say no. If the Bible defines it as a vice, we will redefine it as a virtue. And so, because the Bible in the very first chapters of Genesis stress that God created us, male and female, he created them, it therefore lies at the heart of the modernist, secular, progressive agenda to undo the distinctiveness of male and female. That's where it comes from. Now, I'm not saying that every single hooded thug on the streets promoting the darkness of secular fundamentalism has uh, met with his gauleiter in a dark basement and received marching orders and been taught that we are going to convert everything that the Bible says into its opposite. No, uh, that's not what every single foot soldier understands, but it is what drives the movement in its main fundamental purpose. Um, you might you know, it's a little late to wonder, but back in 92, when Bill Clinton was running for president, um, he spoke quite openly. He said that, uh, uh, you know, we um, we have to give equal rights to homosexuals, but I, that doesn't mean marriage. You don't have to worry about homosexual marriage. And uh, other presidents since then have also said that, but today homosexual marriage is so normal that I shudder at the uh, reality of this, but there are various left-wing denominations in Judaism that actually consecrate and formalize homosexual marriage. Look, and this is a free country. I mean, uh, people can do whatever they like. It just makes me worry profoundly 
when they tend to use 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian credibility to validate things that should have no religious validation. Do what you want, but why do you find it necessary to provide religious coverage? After all, you don't in any way agree with the fundamental tenets of Bible-based Judeo-Christian thinking. So why is it so necessary to have the church and the temple um, officially consecrate your actions? Because the whole purpose is to undo the Bible. It lies at the very center of all of this. So you got to see, since the Bible says no to homosexuality, we have to not only say yes, but we have to do it within the framework of the Bible itself. Um, something else that is part of secular progressive thinking today, obviously, is hatred of property ownership. Everything should be owned by the government. And, and sure enough, taxation is designed to make it increasingly difficult for anybody to gather up and, and accumulate for himself or herself a stake, a grub stake, a, uh, a, an economic foundation to life. And the goal is to make as many people as possible dependent on the government. That is the goal. And, um, and so property is taxed, property ownership is, is taxed, and people with property are suspect. I'm sure you've often heard politicians saying, the rich must pay their fair share, which is just another way of saying people who've actually accumulated a dollar or two are suspect. The Bible in Genesis chapter 23 describes how Abraham uh, wanted to purchase a field in which to bury his late wife, Sarah. And uh, the uh, inhabitants of the land really understood nothing of this idea of ownership and uh, indeed that is the natural default when you think about it uh, you know many primitive groups like indigenous indians in north america had no concept of land ownership in most of africa and most of south america there was no concept of land ownership and it still becomes extremely difficult to acquire title to land and these are, are very real uh, outlooks. People really didn't get it. And even now, when you think about it, it's rather a novel idea that people should be able to own land. I mean, if anything, you think after 120 years, land owns people. But um, gosh, that, that we sh should be able to own. Yeah, um, God frowns on ownerlessness and likes things to be owned by people. Um, the idea partially is that things that are owned by everybody, which is the preference of secular fundamentalism, otherwise sometimes known as communism, things should be owned by everybody. And in fact, John Lennon in his famous song, Imagine, describes that world with no boundaries and no borders and no ownership. Everything belongs to everybody. It's an old, old song that has seduced the hearts of mankind in almost every country for a very, very long time. It goes back all the way to the Tower of Babel.
in chapter 11 of Genesis. But uh, Abraham insists on buying it and wants to hand over money in exchange for the land. And, uh, and that concept is a very important one. And therefore, secular fundamentalism rejects that. Ideally, uh, the, uh, the forces of secular fundamentalism want to diminish ownership. And sure enough, we see that happening. Uh, even now, the um, Davos people, the World Economic Forum issued a, a remarkable document recently speaking about how ownership is going away. People aren't going to own cars. They're going to use Ubers or Lyfts, and people aren't going to use software. And you've noticed this already. Everything's moved to a subscription base. You don't actually own your software. You get to use it for a year. Uh, the whole world, the whole culture is moving away from ownership and driving us towards a secular fundamentalist perspective, which is no ownership. Now, uh, I know what many of you are thinking is, hey, I like it this way. Nothing to worry about. I don't have to worry about owning a car. I don't have to worry about uh, owning a house. I can just rent, and I don't have to worry about owning anything. I just rent whatever I need, and this is trouble-free, and it's wonderful. It also makes us lesser people. It really does, because ownership confers responsibilities. If I own a car, I have to take care of it, and that's a good thing. And if I own a house, I have to take care of it. The desire to shrug off responsibility is the same desire that people have to avoid marriage and family. After all, if I want a woman, I can rent one. That is the, 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 the basic approach. The idea of actually marrying and maintaining a permanent relationship, one that changes my outlook and makes me a different person, I readily understand why in today's culture that is becoming less and less of an interest. And... Uh, and finally, you know, what, what's also very fascinating is the defund the police movement. And it wasn't at all difficult for me to find the verses in Deuteronomy um, where we actually encounter Deuteronomy verse chapter 16, verse 18. Judges and officers shalt thou make for thee in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth you throughout thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. Um, the Hebrew is shoftim, meaning judges. Veshotrim means police officers. Their job is to enforce the laws that the judges apply. And so essential to a biblical view of human society is not only a judicial system that has laws and makes the laws known and rules on the laws in courts of law, but they actually have to be police in order to enforce the law because not all of us obey everything we're told. And so, uh, not surprisingly, the world of secular fundamentalism has to take the other approach. Oh, the Bible says police? Well, then we're going to get rid of all the police. And they're bothered by it because they know that from their perspective, it is 100% the right thing for them to be doing. Of course, they must be trying to get rid of the police. According to their philosophical worldview, according to the doctrines of their religion, and it is a belief system, 
you don't have police. Because, well, you see, the Bible says that the heart of man is evil from his youth. In other words, that deep down inside of us, um, we, we want to get more for less. We want to make less of a commitment and take on less responsibility and make less effort to get more and more. That's our nature. And, uh, and therefore, we have to build a legal system that takes into account the fact that many for people innately are not necessarily good people. Now, there are many, many wonderful, very good people because they are the products of parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, multi-generationals of highly functional living, family life where children are brought up in a family to respect authority and to obey the laws. But then you also have multi-generational dysfunctional existence in the United States of America and also in the United Kingdom and other places. I know of America and England, but I know there are also other places. And um, and there you have people who um, who just don't have the natural restraints that come from several generations of normative family life. And... Um, and, and recognizing this, obviously, a Bible-based civilization says we have to have a judicial system and we have to have a police force. And along comes the uh, leftists. And I say, our belief system is very clear that people are innately good. And if they ever do anything wrong, it's always because of uh, capitalism inequality, racism, etc., etc., etc. There's always an explanation because people are innately good. Why do they believe that? Well, because the Bible view is that people are not innately good. So we have to go that way. And if people are innately good, well, then we certainly shouldn't have police because police are only uh, brutal and, uh, and bullying. And uh, in any event, the Bible in chapter 16 of Deuteronomy says you have to have police. Well, we've got to get rid of the police. So in many ways, we're living through times now where we are watching an incredibly devoted and pious interpretation of the principles of secular fundamentalism, even though it goes against political discretion, because right now, uh, there's no question that the far left of the Democratic Party in America has pushed just a little bit too far, and they still cannot pull back because they are zealots. They are religious fundamentalist zealots. When I say religious, it doesn't mean that they believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believe in another religion, which is actually the mirror image. It's the other side of the coin of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they believe in their faith every bit as fervently as I believe in mine. Now, I, I often speak about how it is that the practice of the faith or the religion of secular socialism generates these dark and destructive pathologies that make it so much harder for us to grow our five F's, our faith, our families, our friendships, our finances, and our physical fitness. And, uh, and, and really, it's, it's worth taking a look at that. Is it true? Is, is Lappin right that the removal 
of Judeo-Christian Bible-based faith and all the rituals and rules and regulations and restrictions of that faith are precisely what makes it possible for society to fall apart? Is it that everything is held together by that slender thread of a biblical transmission? Well, let me read to you a few lines from a speech delivered by the famous Russian dissident and protester and novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, He was an ardent communist in World War II and in the early Stalinist years, and uh, he he completely renounced the faith in which he was raised as a boy, and he had really become a hardcore believing communist. And then certain things happened that um, began to make him question it, and uh, finally he re-embraced Christianity. Um, he, as a result, the Russians took away his citizenship, and they expelled him. And in 1976, he came to live in, I think it was in Vermont, if I'm not mistaken. And he lived and taught and lectured and wrote in Vermont for a number of years until the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1989, when his citizenship was restored and he didn't. He went back and lived the last years of his life back in his homeland. Uh, while he was living in the United States, he was awarded the Templeton Prize, and uh, the Templeton Prize um, created by uh, a man called Templeton, who had built an incredibly successful network of mutual funds and investment vehicles, the Templeton Funds, and he created a an annual. Uh, award to be given in the area of religion and faith. And in 1983, Alexander Solzhenitsyn got the award. And on the occasion of his being given the award in London, um, the late Prince Philip, the husband of Queen Elizabeth II of England, was present. And here are a few lines from his speech. Um, You've got to imagine it in the broken Russian accent of a man who never was really completely at home in the English language, but nonetheless expressed himself very eloquently. Here are his words. Over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Uh, It's pretty powerful. And... um, 
and it is indeed exactly what does happen. Allow me, please, to give you an example. I think you will agree that um, the tendency to see disaster looming on the horizon is very destructive for a culture, for a society, for a country, for that matter, for any group of people, for a family, uh, and ultimately even for an individual. Now, the default condition for human beings is, what do you think, courage or cowardice? Well, what is the default condition for any animal? And if you would imagine a human baby uh, growing up alone on a, an idyllic desert island with no human input, is that, gonna, is that child stipulating that the child will grow up and reach adulthood safely? Is that child going to be a courageous person or a cowardly person? And the answer is, obviously, a cowardly person. Because that is the natural condition, to be frightened of things. Um, and animals are like that. Animals, Most animals' first instinct is to flee. They will only fight if there's no alternative. And that is the natural condition of human beings. It is not an accident that the two great revolutions that shaped the modern world, namely the English Revolution in the middle of the 17th century and the American Revolution towards the end of the 18th century, um, no accident that in both these cases, these revolutions were fueled from the pulpits of churches. And it's no accident that the other two revolutions that have shaped the modern world for bad, namely the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, were secular social revolutions driven by virulent antipathy to the church, to the Bible, and to 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian thinking. So fear is a very natural state of human beings. And along comes the Bible and the Bible-based family structure, and one of the things that good parents teach their children is courage. You've got to develop courage. You've got to be a brave person. You've got to be a courageous person. And we grow up and we learn that. One cannot overemphasize the significance of those first few years, say the first decade or first 13 years of life, where these values are being implanted by wonderful parents. Now, if that doesn't happen in a society that hands off the raising of children to geeks, to government indoctrination camps, and in which children never encounter the idea of God, and they never encounter the reality of a great and loving God that protects and, and, and inspires, well, then they're going to grow up to be a fearful people. And so it's no accident that the growth of secularism in America corresponds precisely to the growth of national fearfulness. And if one dates the arrival of secularism in America to the beginning of the 1960s, Supreme Court decisions uh, banishing prayer from geeks 
and uh, you know the uh, the Roe v. Wade abortion decision ten years ahead. But roughly at that time, uh, the, the religion and faith were being expelled from public life in America. It's from about there that fear begins its entrance. Um, there was and still is a professor at Harvard University who wrote and taught and lectured and claimed in, 19, in the early 1960s that by the year 2000, hundreds of thousands of Americans would be dying of hunger because, and again, going back to Malthusian uh, mistaken principles, uh, resources grow at a finite rate, but humans multiply at a geometric rate. So we're going to run out of food. Americans are going to starve. Well, the year 2000 did arrive, and uh, Americans, no Americans were dying of starvation. If anything, they were dying from obesity, too much food, not too little. And he also made many other predictions, uh, such as that we are going to run out of all kinds of natural resources, including all the most important metals we use, like copper, and um, and the prices were just going to go so high, we weren't going to be able to afford them. price of copper is even less now than it was at the time that Paul Ehrlich wrote these words. Uh, he was wrong on every score. Nonetheless, you too can spend $60,000 a year on tuition to send your child to Stanford to be educated by Paul Ehrlich who in his entire career seems to have got very little actually correct. But you see, he is a product of fear. He himself is a, uh, a secularized American of Jewish ancestry, whose faith is in fact the faith of secular socialism, and therefore he is overwhelmed by fear. And from that period onwards to the present, it's always been some horrible doom awaiting us down the road. During that period, uh, we heard that the world was going to freeze. Honestly, you know, in these days of global warming um, or the, the legend of global warming, yes, I am a denier if that's how you want to tar me, uh, then um, it's only a few years ago, as I say, during the heyday of Paul Ehrlich, that they were saying that uh, we've got to take steps already because the ice age is returning and the glaciers are going to overrun America and there's not going to be possible to grow food. They really believed, they were absolutely sure that all the evidence pointed to a return of a what they called a nuclear winter, an ice age. And then after that, it was acid rain. You might remember that uh, they were certain that the uh, rain coming down was going to become more and more acidic and people would die of skin cancer and it would kill all the vegetation and people would starve to death. And then when none of that materialized, they came up with climate change and every single prediction of climate change has turned out to be fake. It doesn't matter. The faith is not about courage. It's about fear. And in the same way that people who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in his book, look forward to some kind of day of ultimate goodness and ultimate redemption. Whatever that means, we don't know exactly what it means, but whatever it is, it's good times. And conversely, 
the mirror image faith of secular socialism naturally looks forward to horrible times. And that is why your children are being scared out of their wits. If you are unfortunate enough to have to send them to a gig, they are being conditioned to believe that the polar bears are dying and everything is going down the, 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 uh, the, the tubes. We are uh, going to suffer from rising sea levels and there's going to be tremendous human costs as people are forced to migrate because of climate change. The horrors do not end and these are being pumped into the impressionable ears and minds and hearts of your little children because contrary to popular belief, Religion is taught in public schools. Religion is preached in gigs. It's just not your religion. It is the religion of secular fundamentalism, and an essential part of that doctrine is fear. So, in other words, what I'm explaining is how it is that if we get rid of biblical faith, the result is not some benign condition of modern, comfortable neutrality. It is a new susceptibility to fear, and that's exactly what is happening. It's a, it's a susceptibility to fear. It makes us, as a culture and as a society, constantly alarmed by the next peril coming down the road. And this is just why it is that, you know, you may have wondered why there seems to be a political divide on global, oh, they, they don't use global warming anymore because it was no longer possible to prove that there actually is any warming. So they speak of climate change. Well, uh, hard to disprove climate change, isn't it? But uh, there's a, in the United States of America, there is a very clear political divide where uh, Republicans conservatives in general dismiss climate change i mean listen to people like john kerry listen to the corrupt chiefs of staff of the united states military who speak about climate change as the biggest threat facing the united states of america are these people mad you know does the word china mean nothing are they mad no they're not mad they are religious fanatics that's all and religious fanatics do and say many strange, frightening, and irresponsible things. <laughs> That's all. And so, yes, they, they will say that climate change is the biggest threat facing America. Of course they'll say that. Why wouldn't they? But uh, it generally turns out to be that, in general, religious people tend to be politically conservative Secular socialists tend to lean towards the left. And so, not surprisingly, those who are on the left of things tend to believe fervently and vehemently in climate change, whereas people who are more religious dismiss it. It makes perfect sense. People who are more religious have more tendency towards courage. And if indeed down the road it becomes apparent that we are facing the deadly peril of severe and rapid climate change, well, then we'll do something about it in the same way we've dealt with everything. But uh, what the left loves about climate change is it is a huge problem and it can't be solved by any one group of people. It can't be solved by one nation. It needs a how about a United Nations? Ah, perfect. Finally, a justification 
for that useless, expensive, destructive body called the United Nations. Yes, they will be the ones who will solve climate change. But um, again, those of us who are blessed to have a connection to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, are really people who find it much easier to face courage and to face the future with courage instead of with fear. Because facing the future with fear is incredibly destructive to a society. You know, one of the reasons that uh, I've spoken in the past about America being a silly country, whereas China is a very serious country, is that they are educating their children on science and biology and technology and mathematics. And uh, we are educating our children about climate change and uh, recycling. Because that's, again, the doctrine of shortage, which is why we must recycle and why, you know, because we're running out of fossil fuel, which I didn't call fossil fuel. I call God-given fuel. Uh, No evidence at all that we're running out of it. You'd think we must at some point, but I will tell you that every single prediction about the expiration of fossil fuel has turned out to be completely false. Again, when you face the future with fear, then everything becomes an existential threat. And running out of fuel is just one more example of that. And so when I say that uh, the removal of faith threatens all the other areas of life, some of the mechanisms are exactly through this process of abandonment of courage, facing the future with fear, which forces you to make really bad decisions, to allocate resources very unintelligently because we're facing the biggest existential threat facing the United States of America. No, we're actually not. There are far bigger existential threats facing the United States of America. Most of us are far far more bothered by the fact that uh, shelves in stores are empty and that you can't get many of the things you used to be able to get with ease. For most of us, you know what? That's a bigger problem than climate change. But the uh, world of secular fundamentalism won't let you have that. Oh, no. Everything is the problem of this fearful future. Climate change is going to threaten everything. That's the real problem. No, the real problem is um, being able to get something when I order it and have it delivered on time. When I need a spare part for my car, it should be there, which at the moment it simply is not. So when a group of people loses faith, they become much more susceptible to fear and they become susceptible to superstitious fears of the past. Uh, They become susceptible to fears driven by hysteria. You see, look, it's obvious that we live in a changing world. There's no question things are changing. And um, it's also fairly obvious that in many areas the changes are for the worse, not for the better. Now, there have been periods that changes have been for the better. Uh, Longevity, human longevity has been an incredible advance over the last two or three hundred years, driven not by secular socialism, not by the government, driven by private enterprise, medicine, hygiene, all of these things. And, um, and these have been good. Quality of life, uh, average income, um, the fact that um, women today take it for granted 
that they will raise to adulthood however many children they gave birth to. That wasn't the case yesterday. These are wonderful changes, but they're also very negative changes, and we're watching a lot of that happen over the last few decades in the West at the present time. And so you can clearly see that once change is a reality, and change in itself is scary, right? Even I've spoken in the past about how in the early two decades of the 20th century, um, America made the switch from horse-powered vehicles to horsepower-driven vehicles, namely the move from um, fueling transportation in America with the hay that the horses ate to the petroleum that the cars drove. That was a very scary transition, particularly if you were in the horse industry or in the wagon industry. A very, very scary time. It was also a very good time. It was These were wonderful advances, but they were scary. Change is always scary. There's no question about it which is why I devote an entire one of the ten chapters of my book, Thou Shall Prosper, the Ten Commandments for Making Money, I devote an entire chapter to understanding and coping with change, because it's very easy to lapse into fear as a natural response to change. But no, courage is something we have to draw from within ourselves and from within the faith that provides a central core of strength inside of us. And that's why in the five F's that I constantly teach, you might say, well, you know, finance, yeah, I get why you uh, teach finance. Physical fitness, yeah, got to have a good, strong body. Friends, oh, yeah, we all want friends. Family, yeah, I'll give you that as well. But the fifth one is faith. I don't need faith. I'm a rational, normal human being. I don't need faith. I do need finances. I need friends. I need family. I don't need faith. And the, uh, the point I urge you to contemplate in the quiet hours of the night, when you can be free from the distraction of flashing screens and noise in your earphones, to just contemplate the possibility that it indeed turns out that faith is the skeleton of strength that holds up all the other parts of the body of totality and of completeness. We live in a changing world. And, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of the field of astrophysics. The the popular side of astrophysics... um, you know, has for decades already has been dominated by pop scientists. Uh, there was a guy called Carl Sagan who ran a PBS show for a, many years called Cosmos, and he really became a pop culture icon. He was an astrophysicist, but he abandoned the observatory um, and the laboratory for public television studios and he, you know, it caught people's fascination. It's not an accident that, you know, Star Trek was a, a great series and the Star Wars series. Uh, the vastness of the universe does f- play a, uh, a fascinating role in the minds, particularly of more secular people. Uh, if you tend to be a more religious human being, if you are working on building a relationship with God, 
um, the vastness of the universe is is less of a problem because we are already accustomed to the idea of limitlessness in power, omniscience, and omnipresence in God himself. So if the universe is a creation of God, makes perfect sense to me in the same way I cannot understand the vastness of God. I can't understand the vastness of the universe. On to the next thing. Let's take care of business. But if you are disconnected from faith, then the vastness and the emptiness of the universe presents an irresistible and beguiling mystery that preoccupies our minds. And it makes us um, very natural uh, sycophants of the gods of astrophysics like Carl Sagan. Uh, Right now, it's another guy called Neil deGrasse Tyson. And look, I'm not a big fan of these people um, because, as I explained in in the last uh, show of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show series, and, and I'm sorry I missed last week because of the Thanksgiving holiday week, but the week before, I spoke about how much more important it is to look downwards into the small and the micro rather than looking upwards into the vastness and the macro. And I, I covered that in the last show. But, um, but these, these people make pronouncements, you know, whether it was Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, they make pronouncements. And one of the nice things about making pronouncements in the field of astrophysics is it's a lot like being an archaeologist. The nice thing about being an archaeologist is you can point to a heap of stones and say, this was an early period uh, factory for toothpaste, or it was a factory for arrowheads, or it was a a wine press or an oil. You can say whatever you like, because nobody's going to rise up out of the grave to say, you idiot. (laughs) That was just a pile of stones I put together in my field one day to entertain myself. It's nothing. It's not a temple to the ancient gods, and it's not a wine press. It's nothing. You don't have to worry about it. But if you make a pronouncement in physics or chemistry or biology, uh, it's only as good as long as it gets validated and proven. But it's always up for questioning. That's how the science um, project has always worked, that science has progressed by questioning. It's only today that certain statements by so-called scientists, you know, the science is settled. Whenever you hear anybody say the science is settled, whether they're talking about COVID or whether they're talking about vaccinations or whether they're talking about climate change, please don't give me the science is settled. Uh, Anyone who has the slightest interest in the history of science, as I do, has heard that phrase, the science is settled, dozens and dozens of times and every single time without fail they were wrong right when you say the science is settled what you're saying is i intend depriving you of your freedom of exploration you will listen to me and you will not query my words because i am citing them in the name of science uh Look, the whole point of science is that anybody can question it, should question it, and the most unlikely people throughout history have turned out to challenge and successfully topple cherished theories. That's how it works. 
Science grows and expands by toppling wrong theories and finding out the real facts. And so um, only uh, a little while ago, I saw Neil deGrasse Tyson claim that Isaac Newton was only able to study science once he renounced Christianity and the Bible. Look, this is just, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's breathtakingly ignorant. It's shockingly ignorant misinformation. Isaac Newton all his life was a deeply religious, Bible-believing Christian. He lived that way and he died that way. And the only reason he was able to study science was because he saw science as just one more part of the unification of God, that God is one, God is monotheistic, and the world he created enjoys an integrity that scientific analysis can uncover because it is part of a comprehensive and unified system. And so it's just one more example of uh, false statements in the same way archaeologists can make them, astrophysicists can make them. Uh, you know, hey, guess what, you know, the um, come up with whatever you like. You know what, there's actually a, an amusement park beyond the furthest star. Prove me wrong. It's like archaeology. There's no proving archaeology or astrophysics wrong. But um, in other areas of science, you can be proven wrong, and that's a good thing. Um, Carl Sagan, I've often heard him say that science is the study of measurable physical phenomena. Uh, Carl Sagan was also a secularized American of Jewish ancestry, and um, he, uh, he said regularly, science is the study of measurable physical phenomena. And then, sometimes in the same lecture, he argued that God and faith don't exist. But he's just said that only physical phenomena can be measured by science. So you've started off by saying God and faith can't be measured by science. You're a scientist, you claim, and now you say God and faith don't exist. Well, how would you know? Anyways, I mean, this was... This is just me entertaining myself. I'm sorry. Um, you know, the, these are, uh, uh, I mean, this is like taking candy away from little kids. Uh, it's, it's, it, that whole field is, is so vulnerable to, to almost any challenge at all. Um, at any rate, um, by the way, you know, talking of uh, astrophysics, I don't hold much of astrophysics. Astronomy is another area altogether because astronomy is based strictly on measurements of physical phenomena. And a very interesting astronomer was a guy called Alan Sandage. And I don't know if you've ever heard of him. If you, He's an interesting guy. I think he, if I'm not mistaken, he lived until about 2010. So a recent guy. And uh, he was very closely connected to the astronomer Edwin Hubble. Now, Edwin Hubble um, has a, a huge space telescope named after him. And uh, Alan Sandage spent about 2,000 nights in the Mount Palomar Observatory in Southern California in the United States. And um, he uh, was, was very, very close to, as I say, to Edwin Hubble. And one of the things Edwin Hubble is famous for is something known as the Hubble constant. The Hubble constant is a measure 
attached to the idea of the expanding universe. Um, Hubble made it um, inescapable that in spite of the fact that many astrophysicists like Carl Sagan hated the idea of an expanding universe, Edwin Hubble pretty much made it impossible to reject. In other words, if you want to talk about settled science, the expanding universe is settled science. Now, why did secular fundamentalists like Carl Sagan hate the idea of an expanding universe? Well, because it must, it, it follows then that the universe began with what they called the Big Bang. What was the Big Bang? Nobody can really explain it, but it was some momentous transition from energy into matter and the universe started expanding from that moment. Well, that sounds awfully theological to me, and it does, and it did to everyone else too, which is why they hated the idea of the expanding universe. But because of the work of Edwin Hubble and his associate, uh, Alan Sandage, it was absolutely impossible to reject. And so today, to anyone who actually knows anything about the field, the Big Bang origin of the universe is pretty much the only game in town. And uh, not surprisingly, um, sometime after this, it was um, in the, I think it was in the 1980s, uh, Alan Sandage became a believing Christian. And, um, and, and that's, that's, what he, that's how he lived for the rest of his life. He, he was Christian and a believer. Uh, interestingly, um, he wasn't by any means the only one. And in spite of the fact that Neil deGrasse Tyson, <laughs> I mean, unbelievably claimed that Newton renounced Christianity. Blech, come on. I mean, that's embarrassing. Um, Newton was by far from being the only great scientist who shaped our modern world, not only as a believing Bible-believing Christian, but precisely because. And, I mean, just some of the names, there's so many of them, and, I mean, I'd love to devote a show to this if people are interested, but Johann Kepler, uh, the movement of uh, planets in the, in the solar system, uh, Boyle, pressure of gases, pressure and volume of gases, uh, Isaac Newton, of course, I've just mentioned, James Clark Maxwell, a hugely important character. By the way, none of these guys ever said the science is settled. Uh, Blaise Pascal. Leibniz. Leibniz was a, an independent founder of the science of calculus, along with Isaac Newton. They never spoke to one another. Each independently came up with a calculus. Michael Faraday in uh, electricity. Uh, Leeuwenhoek, uh, a fantastic Dutch scientist, in biology, and uh, he is the guy who created microscopes in the 1600s. Uh, and in America, George Washington Carver, by the way. Um, there are so many scientists who not only were Bible believers, but they credited their faith with why it is that they were able to make the uh, scientific inventions that they did. And so. Uh, uh, you know, fear, yeah, I understand why secular fundamentalists are fear-driven. They see change as much as I do, and they choose because they are wired for fear. Because when you, when you have no faith, 
you you automatically default to the fear mode. And that makes it very hard, by the way, to be in business. You like finances? Well, then you'd better be a person of faith. Because apart from anything else, if you're in business, you advance credit to people all the time. And that means you've got faith that they're going to pay you back. And more importantly, you've got faith that when they do pay you back, the money will still be worth something. And obviously, that is a challenge right now. And there are things that people should be doing in order to protect their cash from the almost inevitable ravages of inflation that will be the result of American government irresponsible spending going on right now. So uh, we're not fearful. We are aware of challenges and we act on them. But to cower in timidity and fear, that is much more a function of secularism than it is of faith. And so, you know, whether it's forest fires all caused by climate change, uh, mass starvation, desperate heat-driven migration, rising sea levels, an apocalyptic Armageddon, well, that's the future anticipated by secular socialism, almost inevitably. So that is, my dear friends, uh, the reality of how this works, and um, And it's why it is that it is so important for you to treat your five F's as an entity. You say, well, I just, you know, I don't don't have faith. I don't know anything about faith. Well, you know, that's like a teenager saying, look, you know, I've, um, I've got a pimply face and there's nothing I can do about it. So just get used to it. I'm a pimply kid. That's all there is to it. But that's not what most teenagers do. Most teenagers spend the equivalent of the gross domestic product of half the nations of the United Nations on pharmaceutical products that promise to clear up the acne because nobody they don't want to be that way. Um, not having faith is a little bit like having pimples. <laughs> there is a solution. You can do something about it. <laughs> and, um, and this is not for, you know, it's not for anyone else's benefit. It's for your benefit because it is a necessary part of achieving the fullness of life that can come from a comprehensive and integrated treatment of your five F's. You should, if you haven't yet, you should download the free book at my website called The Holistic You. You definitely want to do that. And um, you might also want to take a look at a new book we've published called Soul Construction. Uh, Again, in in the faith area, it's kind of helpful. It's like anything else. If you want to learn how to make omelets, you know, there are books on how to do it. And if you want to learn how to crochet or or anything else you may want to do, there are are people who can teach you and there are books that tell you how to do it and in the same way to just shrug your shoulders and and say forget faith what that means is you've been a victim of propaganda secularist propaganda and um, and you don't want to do that so again uh, you may think i'm spending disproportionate amount of time on the faith side but it's important because all the others are dependent on it. They are all dependent on each other. I could devote an entire show uh, to physical fitness. 
and that would be very worthwhile because your financial life and your family life and your friendship life depend on that as well and i could devote a, a show completely to friends and show how if you are socially isolated that's going to impact your family life it's going to impact your financial life it's going to impact your physical health all of these five are interconnected and faith tends to be the overlooked one so uh I, I mention that and uh, recommend that you think about that quite seriously. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, right there you can take a look. You can download the Holistic You. You can take a look at the book, Soul Construction. Uh, you can also take a look at uh, Unit 2, of scrolling through scripture unit two is now out there and it's been released scrolling through scripture there it is and uh, available for you so my dear friends stay in touch love hearing from you and uh, make sure that you become a happy warrior because i now do most of my communication uh, giving a priority to people who are happy warriors in other words, if you're a happy warrior and, and you write to me, you've got a very high probability of me making sure I make the time to respond back. And you can even try being a happy warrior absolutely for free for a period of time. So feel free to do that. And uh, at the website, wehappywarriors.com, wehappywarriors.com, you can try out the life of a happy warrior and that way, apart from anything else, you gain the strength that comes from community. And you're able to connect with other happy warriors, many of whom are dealing with some of the things that you are dealing with as well. And um, I, uh, I'm just glancing through some of the interesting letters that people who have written. Um, uh, I mean, gosh, there's some interesting letters. I'm going to talk about them on other shows, but these are letters that I answer uh, in the Happy Warriors community. Uh, I've dated more than my fair share of selfish, impulsive jerks, but I'm dating a guy right now, and I just don't know. My parents think he's a really nice... Oh, this, this is a great, great question, and it's, it's one that we are going to deal with. So, my dear Happy Warriors, thank you for being part of today's show. And uh, I thank you, as always, for the wonderful job you are doing in spreading the word of this show, uh, which helps me and encourages me and, uh, and is good all around. Um, one of the things that your uh, expanding the show is doing is that we actually, I don't want to speak prematurely, and I guess I am speaking prematurely, but I'm very excited that we are coming close to being able to do a call-in show where, like the old talk radio on terrestrial radio stations, we are going to be able to replicate that. Well, all of this lies just a, a little bit ahead, and you will hear more about that at We Happy Warriors once you are an official member of the community of Happy Warriors. So that's as far as we can go today, unfortunately, until next Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. This is it for today. Let me wish you a wonderful week of dramatic growth, not in improving the world, not in fixing society, but in improving your five F's, your faith, 
your family, your friendships, your finances, and your fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.